25, A Soldier's Story. The viewpoints expressed in this publication are those of the author do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of Defense or the U.S. government. The public release of this publication by the Department of Defense does not imply Department of Defense endorsement or factual accuracy of the material. I wrote most of this book during and immediately after deployment to Afghanistan in 2007. The idiocy of U.S. President Joe Biden inspired me to complete the story and publish it because he made all of the sacrifices America's made for the country a complete joke. Joe Biden is a joke, but I was serious when I served the United States of America as a soldier. Biden is making our nation a laughingstock. The story in this book has its humor, romance, and action, but these are the things that happen in real life. The story in Debt 25 is based on real events, but none of this story is about killing or dying like so many other war stories. The story in Debt 25 is about having courage, and specifically moral courage, to do the right thing. It was a complete act of cowardice, and there was not even a shred of moral courage involved in Joe Biden's decision to withdraw from Afghanistan abruptly, like Hillary Clinton, whose decision to abandon the U.S. ambassador in Libya cost the lives of several Americans. Joe Biden's blunders have cost Americans lives, and his continued blunders will cost taxpayers billions of dollars and human lives all over the world. It is time to take a stand against the Democrat war machine and impeach Joe Biden. Clinton lost to Donald Trump because of her cowardice, but Joe Biden's stupidity is going to get all of us killed in global thermonuclear war. This podcast is a single episode reading of the first chapter in Debt 25, A Soldier's Story. Listeners can purchase a digital or printed copy of the entire book from Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble booksellers. Order your copy today. Before I start reading the story, I want to explain why this chapter appears here where it does in the book. When I completed the first draft, I was really excited and tried to find a publisher. I'd never gone this far with any of my writing, but I knew this was a great book and a really inspiring story. I sent the first 20 pages to a publisher's literary agent, and I was immediately rejected. One of the things he said to me in his rejection letter gave me an idea. He said that the book's start was too slow, and there was nothing appealing about the story in those first pages. He was right because the beginning of the story, the way it really began, was not so interesting. The most interesting part of the story was in the middle of the book. I moved that chapter from the middle of the book to the front, made a few adjustments in the text to connect the sequence with a flashback technique, and the problem was solved. The next publisher I contacted loved the book. The second chapter is still not so interesting, but it tells the beginning of the story and establishes some initial conflicts that are always present in any story. It is just a necessary part of storytelling to tell about those initial conflicts and circumstances. I promise that much of those first few chapters has relevance later in the story, although it may not seem like it at first. Here is the first chapter of Debt 25, A Soldier's Story. The Road to Gardez 
I was up early in the morning, despite spending much of the night tossing as much as I reasonably could think to need for the next month into my large rucksack. There was not much to think about. July was the hottest month of the whole year. It was not like I needed to pack any civilian clothing for some party time on the beach. There was no beach in Gardez. I never made it to the beach, but I will tell more about that later. I made it to Gardez safely, but the trip was wholly amazing just the same. Good morning, Yassine, I said cheerfully. I greeted my interpreter in a friendly manner more particularly on this day than any other before then. Getting sent away from his family for a whole month made his job more like being in the army than ever before. It was a hardship for him with a young wife, two kids, and one on the way. He was only 22 years old. He still had pimples. I did not want the mission to cause a small family to become fatherless. I was not worried about mine. I was divorced, and both of my children were over 18 or nearly that at the time. I had already left them fatherless, but they were grown up. They just needed to grow up a lot more than they had because of the conflicts I had with the ex-wife about how to raise them. Good morning, Drill Sergeant. Yasin nodded his head in mild-mannered humility. This behavior was simply part of their culture. While many of my cohorts wanted to force American culture on the Afghans, I preferred to study their culture for its characteristics then try to use that to my advantage. Are you ready to go? You got your stuff? I looked at him as if doing a pre-combat inspection of any troop about to go downrange under my command. Yes, he replied, holding up a bundle that looked sort of like something a kid running away from home put together and tied to the end of a stick. In the other hand, he held up a woodland camouflage flak jacket. Where'd you get that? All the time so far, I had not seen him wearing anything other than his man jammies and some sandals. Yasin did not always wear the traditional clothing of a long-hemmed, loosely-fitting top and loose pants made of cotton we called man-jammies because they looked like pajamas. He sometimes wore typical American-style clothing and sneakers in cold weather. Today, he was sporting a piece of military hardware that looked like something previously issued in Bosnia. All interpreters have one of these, he replied as though it was nothing out of the ordinary. It surprised me that he even had such a thing, but it surprised me even more that he had the presence of mind to bring it along. He understood more completely what we were about to do than I did. Well, put it on. Let me see if it fits. I was really getting into doing a pre-combat check. He put down his bundle of rags and slipped a bit of body armor on after ripping the Velcro fasteners loose. Hey, looks good on you. I paused for a moment. Turn around. I looked at the fit. It was fine. Well, you aren't going to win any fashion contest wearing it. I paused a second to think of something funny. It really kind of clashes with your dress. He really did not get the bit of humor I threw at him like a cream pie at that moment. He looked weird, to be honest. Here was this little man, wearing what looked like a cotton summer dress to most Americans back in the States, contrasted with the various shades of green, brown, and black in camouflage pattern. Do you think it will stop a bullet? Yes, they told me so. Well, while I could have inquired more deeply about exactly who they were that told him this, I could easily draw my own conclusions without asking further. I was not going to tell him that he had been lied to because I had nothing better to offer him. The thing was nothing more than some thick canvas material and had no sappy plates. Designed to stop a bullet, sappy plates were large steel plates covered with Kevlar material. They were heavy and one inch thick. I found out later that he had taken them out because they were too heavy. He asked me about mine later and told him more about them. He did not know what they were. I think if he ever had to go somewhere again, he took those sappy plates along also. We never went outside the wire without body armor to include sappy plates tucked inside both front and back. Without those bullet stoppers, the system was just a vest made of camouflage canvas material. Lightweight versions of the system made of enhanced Kevlar material became available later, but we had the heaviest 
Steel plate body armor during this time. All right, let's go get something to eat. He smiled at the thought of drinking some ice-cold milk as I continued to babble on about how I saw the cooks filling the milk dispenser when I went to get my first cup of coffee this morning. That milk is probably ice-cold by now, and fresh too. The refrigerated dispenser kept the milk cold, but the milk was really far from actually fresh. Pasteurized milk does not spoil quickly, but there was no way to be sure how old it was. Packaged, transported halfway around the world, and passed from one transport to another, and finally stored at our dining facility, it was never really fresh. I never drank the milk. It had a funky smell to it, and an aftertaste like chalk. Yasin loved it. It was delicious, in his opinion, and he was not hesitant to express that opinion with great joy. We had not been in the mess hall for very long before the first sergeant came in and saw me. Drill Sergeant Haley, are you going to get on this convoy or not? He always had a way of just pinching my nerves with every word spoken in his grating tone of voice. We're on it, first sergeant. It looked like departure was actually going to be at 0700 hours, as stated the night before. We still had 15 minutes, but there was going to be a convoy briefing. These briefings usually only took about a minute and were always short when originating from our forward operating base. Stay in the vehicle if we get attacked until told to dismount. Lock and load when we cross into the red. After hearing the command to go red, gunners keep your turrets pointed to the front, rear, or sides depending upon your position in the convoy. Finally, the all-important one, return fire only if fired upon. Hit your targets. If the convoy commander were gutsy, he might say, we will take no prisoners. That usually got a round of chuckles, but the truth was that we really would not have left anything alive for a radius of 100 meters from the convoy. There simply would not have been anyone to take prisoner. Let's go, Yassine. I looked over at him and he gulped down another glass of milk after stuffing his face with the last bit of scrambled egg and toast on his plate. I looked around a bit impatiently now, feeling the icy stare of everyone in the room. The only one in the room who did not seem to have a hateful expression on his face was CSM Punisher. I cannot describe what it was exactly that I was reading in his face at that moment. It seemed to be something between humility and understanding. I found out much later that the Navy lieutenant had gone ballistic in front of the base commander about the Debt 25 Black Ops plan. They had all been standing before the colonel from that time in the morning until late at night before coming to my room to tell me to pack. Our detachment commander, Lieutenant Colonel Professor, got released from active duty, refrat, for the unauthorized plan. He sacrificed himself for the rest of the soldiers in the mission, taking full responsibility at the mercy of the full bird from the Gadencock State. The rest of the year for me among the group was some sort of strange love-hate relationship. They loved to hate me. It was no real secret who told what to whom. They would have never understood the reasoning for what I did at that time. Courage under fire deserved a medal for bravery. Moral courage was rare and never got rewarded. The real unsung hero in all of this was Yassine. I gave him an enamel gold coin as a memento in appreciation for all that he did for me during the year when I left Afghanistan. He was the true savior of our mission, but he still might have been on the Afghanistan side more than ours. We loaded up in the vehicles as passengers on this occasion, having no real responsibility for security unless the need occurred. Like most convoys between Camp Alamo and Camp Phoenix, there was no need. We rolled down Jalalabad Road like we owned it. Drivers forced other vehicles to get out of our way. They were always pedaled to the metal as much as possible. An up-armored Humvee was a frightful sight when it came up behind a slower-moving Corolla, with its headlights flashing, horn blaring, and a machine gun aimed squarely on target. There was simply no hesitation by any driver to get out of the way. We meant business, and it was our business to be mean. The only other vehicles bold enough to try going around us were the jingle trucks. A bearded old man driving some ancient flatbed truck with metal ornaments dangling from all its exterior surfaces seemed to think that J-Bad was his also. It was quite a sight to see one attempting to pass us that morning. It had a canvas cover over the back and it approached from the left. 
All attention and talk over the headsets had us all focused on it. Would this be the one time a band of Taliban was bold enough to attack us in broad daylight with only one Santa Claus at the wheel? Was the back of the truck filled with black-clad Taliban fighters, all armed with AK-47s? The command came over the headset to slow down and let him pass. As it passed, I got a good look into the back of the truck. It only contained stacks of cut wood. Another old gray-bearded man was sitting near the tailgate with a scruffy old dog that looked like a crossbreed German shepherd, a remnant from the Russian occupation years. I tried to take a picture of it with my camera through the three-inch thick bulletproof glass, but it turned out a bit blurry. With the right software, I might have been able to clean it up a bit. Later in the year, I accidentally sat on the camera, destroying it and losing that one Pulitzer Prize photo. It was the finest photographic expression of what life in Afghanistan was really like for those who lived there. It was depressing. We made it to Camp Phoenix without incident in record time. The convoy to Gardez was not leaving until 1,100 hours. We still had two hours to kill. I decided to take the opportunity to stock up on some tobacco since I had no idea what they had at Camp Lightning. Most fobs had their own little post exchange, but there was not much in stock. Soldiers requested items that became inventory in the smaller PX stores. Someone actually requested peach-flavored iced tea from Italy and got it at Camp Alamo. It was really pretty good, too. Yasin and I started to walk into the PX at Camp Phoenix when a specialist standing near the door confronted me. Excuse me, Sergeant. He looked a bit nervous, addressing me, especially with the embroidered drilled sergeant badge in my right front pocket. The expert infantry badge and airborne rings above my U.S. Army Velcro tape said even more that made him a little uneasy to continue. He was most likely some pogue from admin who spent all his time behind a keyboard somewhere in the headquarters. Terps can't go into the PX. What the fuh? I was getting some stares from others passing by as they went in and out of the PX. I was quickly aware, although a bit too slowly, that my use of profanity in a very public place, especially with females everywhere, was not acceptable. The E-4 stood there a bit more confident since I had broken a cardinal rule in the process of nearly breaking another. I rephrased my question. What do you mean? It's a general order on this fob that interpreters are not allowed to enter the PX even if accompanied by an American. I had no idea such a thing existed, but there were other such nonsense orders. Later in the year, I intentionally violated an unlawful order as a matter of protesting the stupidity of that order. There was most likely a general on this post, and he probably had good reason for issuing that order. Some Afghans were thieving little beggars, so I put all the pieces together like I was a wannabe Rubik's Cube expert that had thrown it against the wall and then put the thing together again to beat the puzzle. I really did not want to start trouble with this punk, especially not with all the brass in the area. I was not on the trail, and this was not my stomping ground. All right, all right. Thanks for telling me about it. I didn't know. My response dispersed a few of the crowd who stopped momentarily expecting me to rip a new one into this E4 while getting ripped even worse for doing so. There was a huge difference between torn up and getting torn up. While the discrimination of this torn up order made me angry, I was not going to get torn up for non-compliance. Sorry, Yasin, you'll have to wait out here. He nodded with humility. He was completely submissive about being the target of unreasonable discrimination. You want me to get you anything? I asked him. His expression was one of mixed emotions. He was both surprised and overjoyed at the same time. He was like a kid on Christmas morning awakening to the sight of so much bounty left for him under the tree. It all disappeared in an instant, as if it had only been a dream. He lowered his head and eyes. No, I'm fine, thank you. Well, that was just awful, being publicly humiliated while simultaneously being offered the choice of anything his heart desired as long as it was in the PX was a heart-wrenching moment for me to witness. Well, I insist. He shook his head again and kept his eyes lowered. How about some snacks to take along on the trip? Maybe some potato chips? My vocal inflection raised to a higher pitch as I thought maybe mentioning them might make him change his mind. 
It worked. Do they have barbecue flavor? He raised up his head and looked at me with his childlike puppy dog eyes. I had already shared some potato chips with him in the past. They were barbecue flavored. They were not my favorite, but that was all they had at the mess hall that day. I knew he really wanted something. He was truly just a kid. They do, and a whole lot of other flavors too. Being more like a small city with its own mini economy, Camp Phoenix did not make available additional snacks that soldiers could take on the way out the door after eating the free meal or at other times during the day. We could get coffee for free in the mess hall, but only during chow line hours. If we wanted coffee any other time at Camp Phoenix, we had to buy it from the Green Beans Coffee Shop on the upper floor above the PX. I could go to the mess hall at Camp Animal any time of night or day and get a cup of coffee and a snack. There were always any number of small snacks laid out on a table for anyone who wanted them at any time. It was way past chow time now, so going to Camp Phoenix's mess hall was not an option. I really needed to juice up for the trip. Alertness was critical when traveling into hostile territory. I'm going upstairs to get a cup of coffee to go, so I might be a little while. Are you going to be okay out here by yourself? I looked around the area and saw that there were some tables and chairs that Kellogg, Brown, and Root had obviously made out of imported wood. It was all like some elaborate deck that I might more commonly have seen at a beach somewhere in southern Florida. There was plenty of sand around, but the ocean was far away. Have a seat over there in the shade. I motioned to a place at the table beneath one of the very few trees not already cut down for firewood in Afghanistan. This was a place that could never go green, because they used wood and diesel fuel as the main sources of heat and power creation. There was more pollution in Afghanistan than in many countries in the developed world. I later saw a high level of pollution in Russia, but it did not compare to how bad it was in Afghanistan. If going green in Afghanistan ever became an interest for anyone, there would surely be a demand for nuclear power plants. The Taliban might have more uses in mind for radioactive materials than creating electricity. Okay, no problem. He sauntered off carrying his bag of rags and woodland camouflage body armor. I had already stowed my gear on a truck at the motor pool where the convoy formed up later. It was the first place we went when our convoy from the Alamo stopped in front of it to drop us off. I went into the PX now that the specialist was no longer standing guard out front as if it were his job. I bought two bags of potato chips. One was barbecue flavor and the other was sour cream and onion. I figured that if Yasin did not like the sour cream flavored ones, I wanted to eat them. They were my favorite. The oddest flavor of potato chips I've ever eaten in my life was crab flavor. I bought a bag of them as a snack while passing through the airport in Domodedovo about a year later. Back outside the PX, I located Yasin, who seemed to be fine, having been a free man among free men for 30 minutes in his lifetime. He was not my slave. He was my co-worker. I was Batman, and he was my Robin. Unknown to me at that time, we were going to become a crime-fighting duo in Gardez, or maybe we were just the criminals. We strolled over to the motor pool where the convoy was about to start lining up. I thought I was going to be a passenger as usual. However, the convoy commander came to me and explained that they were short a few personnel on this return trip. Sergeant, can I count on you to take the turret in the trail vehicle? I did not know this at the time, but the trail vehicle was notorious for being the one to take the most hits on the trip between Gardez's Camp Lightning and Kabul's Camp Phoenix. Yes, sir, no problem. I think I might be bored silly for that distance just sitting in the back seat. With the problem solved, the captain called his briefing to order and laid out the plan for movement. I was being set up, but I had no idea that I was at that time. Sergeant First Class Haley will be in the turret in the trail vehicle. I will be in the lead vehicle with Captain N in the trail vehicle. Their cargo trucks will be center. We have some good weather today, but intelligence reports that the natives are restless. Expect anything, particularly when we are going through steep terrain. Remember the rules of engagement. Keep other vehicles back away from as much as possible, Sergeant Haley. Wave, point, and fire a warning shot if necessary. Any questions? Everyone sort of looked at the ground when 
Then we looked at each other. Nobody had questions. We all knew what to do. It was not our first rodeo. I seemed to be the celebrity at that moment with the convoy commander mentioning me by name to all the others there. What was there to being in the trail vehicle that caused this kind of notoriety? Rules of engagement? I thought they were clear to me that it was shoot only if fired upon. It seemed to me he was saying to shoot if a vehicle got too close. I shook my head as if I were trying to clear the confusion like shaking a rug on my back porch. They all seemed overly paranoid in my opinion. I soon came to know why. I was not a fan of going on convoys. I had been on a few of them already and even as a truck commander sitting in the front right seat. There was one sergeant among our detachment who went on nearly every convoy that left the Alamo. It was not like he had a job doing something more important. Not all of us were drill sergeants in the group. He was Sergeant First Class Hawaiian. His job was in operations and planning support, but he did more for us as a team than really doing anything related to operations and planning. He did a good job for us overall. Get in the Humvee, I seen. I motioned for him to climb in behind the TC seat. We were one person short in the truck that usually rolled out with five soldiers, so we had plenty of headsets to go around. I gave one to Yasin as I climbed into the turret to stand. I'm not sure why this Humvee had it, but it had a pig for the turret gun. It was an old 240 Bravo, the descendant of an M60 machine gun. It fired 7.62 millimeter rounds that could tear up anything in its line of fire. It was really much to my relief as well, having had lots of experience on this beast. I was more confident that I could hit my target with it than the monstrous M2, also known as the 50 caliber Browning machine gun. The bigger machine gun kicked like a mule, but it could easily penetrate the armor of older Soviet-era vehicles. It was not the weapon of choice for a Humvee in Afghanistan. The Taliban did not have any armored vehicles. They drove around in light-skinned trucks like the Ford Rangers we drove around in at Kabul Military Training Center. I found only two boxes of ammo sitting next to the weapon with one of them already open. We drove out of the gate and went red. I pulled the charging handle to the rear, lowered the belt on the feed tray, and closed the feed tray cover. With the selector button set to safe, all I had to do was push it, squeeze the trigger, and let the machine gun do the rest. I still had two other firearms, so I loaded rounds in both of those. I kept my M4 close to me in the turret, and my 9mm pistol was in its holster on my belt. Loading a pig was a little different from loading a squad automatic weapon. We loaded the saw with the bolt forward. This was the one advantage that Soviet-made machine guns had over American ones. There was never this confusion about which one was supposed to be loaded which way. There was no difference in loading procedure. Of course, they did not fire very well in the cold like ours did. During the winter, I watched the Afghan drill sergeants struggle on a range to get one of their PKMs to fire in a freezing winter storm. I told them to put some oil on it. They dumped some oil into the breech of the weapon. Straight out of a can of oil they kept for one of their leaky old trucks. That thing smoked like it was on fire after just a few seconds. It was not the kind of oil I was talking about. I went over to one of the other machine guns and put a few drops of oil on the mechanism from a small bottle of brake free I kept in one of my grenade pouches. I never got issued a grenade, so the pouch came in handy for that purpose. The machine gun fired and it was a small and amazing moment for all of them to see how a few drops of magic stuff could make it all work just fine. I was going to need a little magic stuff on this trip, but not that kind. It was something else, much greater than simple magic or gun oil. There was going to be something magical happen on this trip. We drove through parts of Kabul I had never seen. I had gone on a convoy with the CSM into downtown on the trip to the presidential palace. I never saw Ahmed Karzai, but he was there at that time. So we were along for the ride as security. The trip was crazy because we did it in Ford Rangers and because we drove like we were in Humvees. Initially, we drove the light-skinned vehicles called LTVs for short trips between the Alamo and Phoenix and on that one occasion into downtown. That all came to an end when commands changed in Kabul. New commanders and units always meant new rules. There had been an incident between Americans and local authorities in Kabul. They thought we were Taliban and we thought they were Taliban. I had heard the rumor that someone fired a few shots at them, but I cannot be sure. 
I actually went out to get on that convoy to Phoenix the morning it happened. I stood there in an open area between huts, looking at the convoy, getting ready to depart. I had the strangest feeling about it. It was a kind of deja vu sort of feeling, so I changed my mind. It was just smart not to allow those LTVs to be driven on the roads anymore. Friendlies in Afghanistan were not always identifiable, since both Taliban and local police, or ANA vehicles, looked very much the same. I saw some pretty amazing sights from the turret in that Humvee. I saw a small child, barely able to walk, standing next to the road as we roared along. He was so close that he was merely inches away from the edge of the road, and he disappeared in the dust cloud our vehicles made. I breathed a sigh of relief when I saw him waddling back toward his father, who was laboriously working in what looked to me to be a rice paddy. Rice was a staple grain in Afghanistan, and there were small patches of it growing everywhere along the road to Gardez. That little boy's daddy was working in the field, and he was not minding the location of the child. He never even looked up. We had already seen plenty of children roaming around the drown range area of KMTC. The entire place was an impact area where trainees fired live ammunition into a berm or other area where the rounds cannot go as far as they really can. We fired plenty of ammunition at the mountain from the range spread all around its space. Mortar and artillery range were farther north on the backside of the gar, patched to for mountains, and it was the biggest mountain in downrange KMTC. In the course of doing our jobs, we drove those LTVs all over downrange area at KMTC. We drove down the road along the string of firing ranges. We stopped or turned on a blind corner. Children came out of nowhere and surrounded our vehicle. They all ran down to the road from the safety of their little hiding places among the rocks when they saw us coming. They stood there on the edge of the road and in the ditch, holding out their hands. It had been a big mistake made by some other kind-hearted soldiers who stopped and gave away candy. These little tykes stormed the vehicle like little mindless zombies holding out their hands to ask for candy. I remember taking an alternate travel route to the back side of the guard and rear gate to Pulley Charkey. There was one sight there I will never forget. An old dilapidated two-story house stood at the bend in the road. Next to that wreck was a humongous pile of trash. As we got closer to this dump, little boys and girls sprang up out of that pile of refuse and ran toward us with their hands out. The near misses were many, and new rules were necessary. Giving candy to the children out in the impact area on KMTC was no longer a thing of kindness. It drew them out to us like flies, and our trucks were like fly swatters. The children were filthy little critters, too. None of them could have been much older than seven, and they probably never had a bath in their entire lives. They wore mostly rags and tattered clothing, and the smaller, younger ones wore barely anything at all. It was absolutely the most heartbreaking thing to see, but Candy was not going to fix it. A good hot bath and some clean clothes that fit, followed by a swift kick on the backside of the parents who let them roam wild in the desert, might have done some good. This was the culture of Afghanistan. It was all based on the concept of Inshallah. All things were led to be what they were as God willed it. The sense of it all and how deep it ran in the minds of these people were completely perplexing. Parents let their kids roam around the desert area where we fired live ammunition without any fear at all. If one got run over or killed by a bullet, it was God's will. Inshallah. It was the catch-all word to excuse any failing or explain anything that just was not right. I learned to use it to my advantage. There were many other sights that surprised me as we drove on through the metropolitan area of Kabul. It was the south side like no other south side. Throngs of people aimlessly walked along narrow streets. They did not seem to have anything better to do except what they were doing at that moment. I saw swarms of flies buzzing around a chunk of some animal carcass hanging off the beam of an overhang in front of a small shop. I could smell the rancid meat from the turret, too. It was going to be dinner for someone, but thankfully not me. As we cleared the busy streets and drove out into the wide open territory, I saw several mud wall compounds surrounding a house in the middle. The houses were all mud brick, too, except the ornate doors. They all seemed to have excessively large and ornately colored or painted double doors in the front of the houses. The walls that surrounded them also had large double gates. 
Some of them had dusty old Toyota Corollas parked in front of the gates. I watched the buildings and structures of cobble disappear behind us on the horizon, and the air became much fresher to breathe as we drove further south toward Pakistan. Before I knew it, we were approaching an area of steep mountains and deep ravines. On the left of the road was a mountainside that went nearly straight up for as far as I could see. On the right of the road was a ravine that was as deep as it was wide. I saw the bottom of it and that there was a small river flowing through the middle of it. I saw someone walking along the banks of this river with a large pile of firewood on his back. It may have been a woman. I could not really tell. The figure was as small as an ant from where I stood in the turret of that Humvee. It struck me as odd that the person was carrying a bundle of wood when there was not a tree in sight. It was all rock, dust, dirt, and sparse areas of weeds. The road became steeper. The engine whined from the strain of the incline and the added weight of the thick layers of steel all around the truck. The large, fully surrounding heavy steel plating of the turret probably weighed a ton by itself. Up to this point, the traffic on the road had been pretty light. Vehicles that began to follow us stayed a good distance back from us as I waved my hand, motioning them to stay back, and even pointed the muzzle of the gun toward them if they did not understand my meaning initially. There was no mistaking that message. It needed no words. It was getting harder for the trucks to get up this hill, and we were slowing significantly. I gathered at that moment that this was the usual, and this might just be the place previously mentioned. With a steep cliff rising up out of the side to the left and a deep ravine to the right that seemed to have no bottom, we were in a kill zone, for sure. It was like one of those situations often shown in old movies where the Native Americans chased the wagon train of settlers into a box canyon. That was a bad day for the settlers. It could be a bad day for us. I saw a vehicle weaving around the other cars that were following it at a good distance from us. Traffic behind us was slowing also. In the distance, an LTV was passing other vehicles and approaching our convoy. Sir, I got a camouflage-painted LTV coming up on us pretty fast, I said in my microphone, leaving the comm switch on. I was not on the radio, so my hot mic was not going to interfere with other comms. I hunkered down behind the butt of that 240B, quickly checking the ammo in the box to make sure it was loose enough that the belt did not get caught on the edge of the can in case I had to wrap a few rounds. Stand by. What kind of response was that? He began relaying the information up to the lead vehicle. Weigh them to stay back, Sergeant Haley. I have, sir. They aren't yielding. I was saying that and not really too excited when I spoke. Honestly, my heart was racing and it was hard to hide the emotion of the moment. Is your weapon loaded? I did not expect that question, but the two of us had never met before and I had never worked with him until this convoy. Yes, sir. Locked, cocked, and ready to rock. That statement might seem a bit cliché. But that was how we talked. Take your weapon off safe, Sergeant. He said that so calmly that I was a bit steadier. This was how it was going to go down. He was going to make the call and all he had to say was squeeze it. And this beast was going to spit fire and lead all over the place. Sir, I think this might be some A&A. I could see the vehicle and the markings on the store now. They were getting really close. I tried to wave them back again, but I was a little less aggressive by not pointing the muzzle of the machine gun at them. I could see a group of soldiers piled in the back of the truck. They all had Kalashnikov rifles and there was a PKM on a pipe stand in the middle. The gunner pointed it down and to the left as the LTV continued to get closer. Are you sure, Sergeant? The TC asked, and I confirmed. He quickly radioed up to the lead command vehicle, and the response came back. We pulled over and let them pass. We pulled as much to the right as we reasonably could, and a light rain began to fall. It was just enough to mix with the dust on the surfaces of the Humvee, which was looking like some kind of brown-on-brown -brown Dalmatian. The captain in the lead vehicle was fuming that I had not fired on them, but they were just members of the Afghan National Army. I could tell by their uniforms and the vehicle's markings. We had allies in country, or did we? We were moving at a crawl, not wanting to actually stop for concern that we might not get these trucks moving again on the steep grade. The TC and the ANA vehicle gave us a weak salute when the LTV and its squad of ANA soldiers recklessly sped past our convoy. 
The troops in the back held their weapons, the muzzles pointing down, which was clearly a non-threatening posture. I kept my turret pointed to the rear with one hand on my M4, which I had stowed in the open area of the turret. Out here, we never really knew for sure who was home. If they did not shoot first, then they were most likely the good guys. Even if they fired first, they might still be good guys. I believe that anyone who shot at me first was most definitely a bad guy. The A&A truck finally roared past the lead convoy vehicle and we got the word to continue. The rain suddenly stopped as we rounded a turn in the road, which opened up to the most amazing sight I've ever seen. In the distance ahead, I saw a bridge that crossed the source of the water in the ravine. Much higher up above the bridge was a waterfall. The water flowed off the edge of an escarpment and splashed on the rocks below so that huge plumes of spray rose upward. Above all of this was a rainbow. It stretched across the river at the top and disappeared among the rocky edges on both ends. I motioned to Yassine to look up ahead as I turned back to the rear trying to wave back the civilian vehicles that were becoming increasingly impatient and aggressive, especially after watching the ANA pass us. Let one guy go by and the rest want to do the same. It was not going to be like that. I did not have to shoot to kill. I could fire some rounds into the engine block and settle it very quickly without hurting anyone. My only concern was that I had never fired this particular weapon before and did not zero the sights. It was going to be a spray and pray if I had to shoot it. While it might seem to some who are reading this that I was not a religious man, the truth is that I was, and deeply so. I used profanity from time to time, but I was not a saint. Cursing did not mean that I did not believe. God sent a sign to Noah that he would no longer destroy the world with a deluge of water, as that story goes, by having a rainbow in the sky. While we can't easily explain the cause of a rainbow as a light refracted through prism, that being the water mist from the falls in this case, I took it as a sign from God that he was watching over me. Something good was going to happen in Gardez. I just did not know what it was at that time. We crossed the bridge and the air felt great. It was moist and cool. I was getting pretty tired and the sun had beat on me all day long. Dusk was getting closer and the sun was beginning to set behind the mountains. We rolled into Camp Lightning just in time. Taking the dirt road off the main road was actually the worst part of the whole trip. There were several large mud holes in this rutted out road that cut off from the paved road, which kept going on until it went into Pakistan. This short bit of massive pothole infested road was the access road into the fob, situated on the west side of the ANA post, which had the same name as the city. The Humvee bobbed up and down violently as the driver did his best to negotiate this obstacle course, but I was still like a rag doll, flopping around in the turret. I looked up to the west where the sun's disappearance behind the mountains cast eerie, slow-moving shadows on the city of Gardez. I saw hundreds, maybe thousands, of mud-brick huts randomly scattered all up and down the slope of the mountain range on both sides of the highway, for as far as I could see in that dim light. I dismounted the vehicle and got my gear off the truck with Yassine following closely. There was a short after-action review and post-convoy operations briefing, all gathered around as the captain began to speak. Good work, everyone, he said. He looked pretty tired, too. I've never said this before, but that was the first convoy I've been on since I have been here that nobody fired a shot. The trail vehicle personnel did a good job. Sending that intel forward the way you did made that one of the best trips I've made between Phoenix and Lightning. Balls of steel. That last part was their battle cry, or motto. He actually seemed mad that I had... Not fired at the ANA initially, but I was not paranoid like they were. Afghanistan was not dangerous. As I stood in the open gravel-covered area inside of Camp Lightning, surrounded by buildings made of plywood, I watched the last slide of the sun as it dropped below the mountains and cast an incredible aura in the sky. My mind raced with so many thoughts of what life was going to be like for me during my stay in Gardez. How did I get here? How did this all begin?
So there you have uh, chapter one, the very first chapter called uh, The Road to Gardez in Debt 25, A Soldier Story by Michael Haley. That's me. This has been an author's podcast reading of the book. I hope that everyone enjoyed the story and that you can understand the way that I write. You see how the way that I write, I write with uh, a lot of detail. It's all about dialogue. Dialogue is important, but the detail is what makes the story what it is. Once again, you can get this book at Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Thank you for listening.